Ruby Wax, it is lovely to see you. And although people can't see you as I can see, you are in fact in bed, I think. Yes, I am. <laughs> Which is very, very apposite because you did some of your most famous interviews in bed. I hope they're not the most famous, but <clears throat> still. They were iconic. I remember them from whenever they were. Were they the 90s? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That long ago. Not that long ago. But you are extraordinarily 70 years old. I couldn't believe it. Well, I couldn't believe it. Oh, right. um, Matthew, I don't talk about my age. <laughs> okay, let's not talk about your age. Yeah. But you are terribly youthful looking. In fact, I bumped into you the other day, which is why we finally got around to, to doing this. And I'm very excited. There are 20 questions. Before we even properly start, I want to say that you're on tour. You've just slept for 15 hours because you've yeah. been poorly. I've, I've got a cold myself. But you are on tour around the country. You've just added dates, I think, in London. Some yeah. of, the, some of the, the dates of your tour are sold out. Some of them have still got some tickets to sell. So you are excited. Oh, online for Ruby Wex tour. And the tickets that are for sale, I'm telling you to buy them. And this tour <laughs> is called I'm Not As Well As You Thought I Was. No, I'm not as well as I thought I was. Yeah, you're not as well. Not I'm not as, I hope I'm as well as I thought I was. But you're not, apparently. First question. Uh, my first question was going to be, what's it actually like being Ruby Wax? But while you digest that, and I'll ask it for my second question, tell us a bit about the tour and about the show. Uh, the show is uh, two two stories. One is um, I wanted to, uh, after lockdown, I was thinking, okay, I, I need to enrich my life because I've been locked up and I'm not that interested in how I'm living or how I was. So I started going on these epic journeys. But then at the end of, not at the end, but after about five of these epic, like 30-day retreats, trying to get people out of Afghanistan, working in refugee camps, living in a Christian monastery, I would have gone on. But I got my depression again after 12 years. So I had to check into a clinic, a mental clinic. So half the story is in the mental clinic and what happens. And the other one is all these journeys outward. And what's interesting is they kept they use techniques on me that are new, that had a 65% chance of success. I was the 65%, so I was out of there in about three weeks. But in the meantime, I had EMDR therapy, and um, which I never really believed in, but she did kind of un unveil why it was that I was running so hard. So there's sort of a journey in and there's a journey out. Some of the journeys out are hilarious. I don't know about the EMDR therapy. What does oh, that sound like? It's eye movement de desensitization reprocessing. It's just for people with trauma. And I thought trauma was an Oprah word, but it turned out I had a doozy. There are so many threads to pick up on, on, on your first answer. One of which is, did you really go to Afghanistan? No, but I was getting people out and I did get some out of Greece who were in refugee camps. What's it like being in... My skin? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what is it like being in that sort of therapy? But yeah, what's it like being in Ruby Wax's skin? Well, when I'm on stage, you'd like to have that sensation because it's totally um, focused and you're 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 completely tuned up to a room full of people, which is my answer to community. I always yearn for community. Then I have a kind of a, you know, we're all devils and angels underneath. I'm not going to reveal either. <laughs> sometimes I'm wonderful and sometimes it's the devil so that's all I can say surely the devil's going too far Ruby no the devil <laughs> okay that was a, that, that was a sort of question off the back of a question so it's not going to count as my third question my third question is just this we were actually on stage together in Cheltenham at the Cheltenham Literary Festival a few years ago it was fantastic fun 
how do you change from the ruby wax off stage to the ruby wax on stage do you feel yourself clicking into a into a different yeah, I don't use a persona anymore you know I used to go into this smiley kind of you know desperate animal and now especially in the show that I'm touring I'm even in my pajamas you there's a very a fine line between what happens when I face a thousand people and when I would just talk to an individual I think that's the more interesting because then you're more authentic so there isn't much of a difference now, except that your heart races because you're facing that many people. But I try to keep it as real as if we're having a conversation now. When you were doing your interviews with big name celebrities, oh, then I it up. Yeah. that must have been kind of an extraordinary thing to be on national telly interviewing these national figures, sometimes international figures. And I wonder whether you felt at the time like you were faking it. Yeah, I was faking it because you have to make them like you in five minutes. Otherwise, interview's over um, and they only have five minutes. So I had to really switch on a persona, which cost me a great deal emotionally, but also got me a great career. Um, yeah, then you need a persona. What lots of people I imagine do not know about Ruby Wax is that you had quite different beginnings professionally. I mean, you collaborated. Before, no, I just need to know if you're separating the answers, whether I should go on or not. So you need to say, this is the next question. If okay. you don't, you this know what is... I mean? I could go on and on. So if you're jumping, just tell me. I'm jumping to question number four, Ruby. Okay, thanks. Question That's... number four is that not everyone would know but here you are, you're almost conducting our interviewer. You are the interviewer. No, no, because interview. I'll tell you, I could go on for an hour thinking it's one answer. So I'd rather you go, oh, four, five. You know what I'm saying? I'm going four now. Not everyone knows about your beginnings. I mean, I'm going to go back to your beginning beginnings in a bit. But professionally, I mean, you had a very close collaboration with the great, late Alan Rickman. Yeah. And you worked for the Royal Shakespeare Company for a while. You mm -hmm. appeared in a play with Juliet Stevenson, who has become one of our great actresses. Tell us about those beginnings and how you transitioned from working for the Royal Shakespeare Company to being in bed with celebrities, just for example. The quick answer is I got in the Royal Shakespeare Company. I wasn't very good. Rickman saw me and said, stop acting, um, go into comedy. And then I did move into comedy quickly. I did Girls on Top. And from there... Um, Michael Grade, who was head of Channel 4, saw me and gave me my own show. And that's when that started. And then I just I just stayed on the right path, because if I would have kept going, um, I mean, it was a great beginning. I went from drama school to the Royal Shakespeare Company. But when you're not good, you break out in a flop sweat. And then when you're with a um, when I was doing interviews, I was, a, you know, I was bumping up a persona, but it was there was joy. There was happiness until I got the assholes like Donald Trump and Bill Cosby. But when I was with mostly the women, I was in love. So there's the answer. Is there a difference for you between doing, as it were, straight up stand up? Now, wait a minute. You have to say five. Five. Sorry, five. Okay. Number five. This could be a new formatted way of doing these. But you called it 20 questions. That's fair enough. Okay. Number five. Is there a difference for you between doing straight up stand up? And by that, I mean, you are there as a stand up comedian. That's it. it that, that's your thing. And doing something like a tour now where I'm sure you're very funny, but perhaps it's a bit more, ref you're, you're reflecting on things. You're, you're maybe more discursive. I don't know. Uh, would you I say never... that? Yeah, I've never done stand-up. 
Um, I never did it. Um, I went from straight acting to writing comedy for Dawn and Jennifer to working with Alan Rickman, who made me have a um, a format and a, a to do act one, act two, act three and have a conclusion. So I never did. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. So it was there's always a narrative. It's just that in this one, I'm not as well as I thought I was. It's more um, I'm acting because I got another director that's like Rickman. I too present it out to the audience, but it's not like if they left, I'd still be doing the show. You know what I mean? I'm not waiting for their laugh. They're laughing, but it's a different thing. I'm not begging for it. You said a little earlier, and this is question six. Good. You see, right? I'm yeah. learning. You said earlier that I'd like to have your skin or be in your skin when you're on stage. Is there much better in life than someone or rather an audience laughing at what you're saying? Whether, whether it's a traditional joke or whether you're improvising. When you're on stage, in other words, and you have an audience in the palm of your hand and they are laughing when you hope that they will laugh, that's a pretty good feeling, isn't it? Um, it's bullfighting. Um, but again, because this is a play, when they go <gasps> like that, because I say dark things, it goes very dark, um, they're still listening. So if they're going with me on the journey, and then I'll give them something funny. So I don't, I'm not that interested in a laugh machine. Um, I'm not waiting for it. It's a pleasurable thing, but the real pleasurable thing is that you stuck to the script. I don't improvise. I mean, I will a little bit, and that makes me laugh inside that I've gone slightly, but you have to stick to it because it has, a, there's lighting. It's so beautifully lit that um, it takes you on journeys. I'm doing what nobody will know, but Spalding Gray did, which is he took you on, he was a great raconteur and he took you on great imaginative journeys, but he never did, hey, ladies and gentlemen. So I hope you're going on the trip with me. Number seven, let me take you back to your interview with Donald Trump. Just remind me exactly oh, which- what? <laughs> you remind me exactly which year that was. I don't know. I blocked it out. <laughs> it was a long time ago, relatively speaking. If someone had told you when you were interviewing Trump that he would become the president of the United States and might become the president of the United States for a second time, what would you have said? Well, I that's why he threw me off his plane at 33,000 feet. I laughed when he said, I want to be the next president. I thought it was a joke. So um, I would I would I'm so ashamed of my country. I'd never have, been, it's like you say, you want to be prime minister, except you're not evil. He was evil. Uh, you're not mincing your words. No. Do you see yourself as an American now? Or do you see yourself as British or British American? You were born in Illinois. I don't see myself as uh, American. I never did even living in America. My parents were foreigner, foreigners. So I've always been a refugee. They, your parents were from Vienna. Yeah. They were Jews. And my grandparents on my father's side were also Jews from Vienna. I know, we discussed that we might be related. Do you think we, we might be? similar without the beard. <laughs> um, yeah. So you, you even, even growing up in America, you didn't feel, this is question nine now, you didn't feel American. What did you feel? Did you feel a sense of, your, your fa did, were you, did you feel like you were an outsider? Your, your father, I, I think. I spoke German first. So what do you think? You know, I, I didn't speak English. Um, the family... I never when they said the Pledge of Allegiance, I just I just lipped it. I didn't really I don't feel national national love for anything. I think that's from the Kandira novel, you know, which is I don't know. But he says to wave a nationalistic flag is not necessarily good for the world. And so I don't I don't say I stand for this. I don't stand for anything. Question number 10. Your father, he ran a slaughterhouse, didn't he? No, no. A sausage casing industry. Oh, that's different. 
he didn't kill them. He just took the intestines and made it into salami and sausages. Not everyone would know this, Ruby. but Yes, just, they do. I've written it in my book. I've tested people. People haven't all read your book yet, but I'm sure, I'm sure they will. This is part of my question 10. Conjure a sense of what that childhood was like, the daughter of Jewish refugees from Vienna. Your father made sausages, or the cases for sausages. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. What town were you born in? Oh, no, you've got to come see my show because there's a little bit in why, again, that that shrink who plays herself. She's actually a recording, um, takes me down into what happened because I always made it funny for Rickman. But what wasn't funny um, is something I never talked about. So you do get my childhood. I don't want to ruin it if people come to the show. It was disastrous. It was a car crash. They were they brought the war from Vienna to our kitchen and wanted me to suffer how they did. So they were very upset that I was, I happened to be born at a time when it was totally sexual freedom. Question number 11, did you not go to some sort of, how would you describe this? You'll, you'll put it better than I can, but a, some sort of finishing school or some, something in Switzerland, some sort yeah, of. Yeah, when I was 16 or I don't know what age, around there, they sent me to a finishing school in Switzerland which finished me. I was so rebellious. I ran away and came to England and um, and I begged them for some money and they wired me back a dollar because uh, I was, you know, I wasn't going to take that. And I didn't learn French, but I taught everybody English. <laughs> but finishing school is so ironic, you know, because it's the last thing I am. Do you read lots of books? I do, but it's science books now. I, 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 you know, once I got into Oxford, I was interested in neuroscience. So I'm very, very impatient. I mean, I, I do read fiction, but I read a lot about the brain. And now I'm into, um, I, I, I sound so pretentious, but I'm, I start very basic. So I'm into, um, I don't know mathematics, but physics now. I'm fascinated and I don't understand a word of it. Question number 13, and I haven't told you already that we've had questions number 12 and maybe even 11 I didn't mention, but question number 13, tell us about this Oxford experience, please. When did you get into Oxford? Do you mean Oxford University? Do you mean Oxford? Yeah, Oxford University 12 years ago, because I was so interested in how the mind worked. I always was when I was, before I went to university, well, I studied psychology, and then I came to England and got a little bit of I was bitten by narcissism and then followed that, but always knew I'd go back to psychology. And even my interviews were, I was writing a thesis in my mind about how the, their minds work. What was the disease of fame? So um, I was, after I got kicked out, well, I wasn't, my shows ended after 25 years, I went back, but now you could look in the brain. When I was at Berkeley, you couldn't look in a live brain. And so I met the, um, the guy who, one of the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which also includes neuroscience. And I said, how does, what do these exercises do in the brain? And he said, you'd have to get into Oxford University and get your master's. And so I did. And he was surprised. One of the most interesting things about being a human being is kind of connecting the different fields of our study. So thinking about the brain and consciousness, where science meets philosophy, yeah. For for example, and, and other disciplines as well. How do you understand, question number 14, how do you understand consciousness? There, nobody, I'm, I'm going to go right to it. It's called the big question. Nobody's ever answered it. And I wouldn't dare. We have it, but nobody, that's something science has never figured out. Do you share my sense of awe 
and this the sensible that many of us have about being human, about being a human being, that we have these powers of understanding and exploration and investigation. And yet there is so much still that we don't understand, even about ourselves. Oh, I mean, to me, this tops religion or politics or anything that I always say it should be on the headline of every newspaper and kids should be taught it. And I think they are now a little bit about what we know, how the brain works. And then it won't, it's like your car breaks down on the motorway. It's really helpful to know about the engine. So kids would understand we have a lot of in common underneath the boot. And um, so I'm really grateful. It is my religion is neuroscience. Do you feel that you know yourself, Ruby? I know more than I think um, if I didn't study this, I wouldn't know this much. I don't think that comes automatically. Not very long ago, you did a TV series where you, Ruby Wax, looked back at the Ruby Wax from, I think, the 90s, where you were doing all those high-profile interviews and you were commenting on the interviews that you'd done. Yeah. Is there something quite interesting about having a sort of public footprint that there is this archive of what you were like in one form decades earlier that you can revisit. What did that teach you about your well, understanding I, of yourself? Well, it was like doing an obituary about yourself. Because there, are, I went back and did, and was able to make comment like somebody would after you died. Um, I, you know, I was perfect for a 20-year-old with ambition. I was perfect, you know, that was, that was winning the lottery. But if you behave that way when you're my age, that's a tragedy or you hold on to the past. So the fact that I reinvented and jumped into this kind of science, science uh, interest is to me, that's what, that's the smartest move I ever made. Not, not just acting out on my, you know, excitement and getting attention. That's not interesting at this point. Do you though? I mean, you talk about, talked earlier about. Where are we at? Is this another question? This is number 18. Okay. This is the fastest 20 questions we've ever had, Ruby. You're playing the game beautifully because I do worry about our attention spans as, as consumers. I mean, anyway, I, I, want to, I want to get a set and I don't want to invade your privacy. So I don't want to know anything about your children. Yeah. But has being a parent impacted on your public life? I mean, how do you juggle being a very public figure who lots and lots of us recognize putting, I was going to say putting a lot of yourself out there, but as you say, sometimes you were faking it. So it wasn't perhaps... Yeah. At that close to the core Ruby, if there is a core Ruby. How have you combined being a parent in your life with being a very public figure? Well, it's not like being famous in America. I mean, once in a while, and I love it, somebody will stop and tell me their mental issues. Because young people come to my show and they think I've just written these books like called Frazzled or Sane New World. And it helps them because kids are burning out faster than adults. And they read my books. So I love it that they they don't even refer to the TV shows. They refer to saying, um, what medication do you take? My brother committed suicide. How do I deal with that? My daughter, I think, won't come out of the closet. They ask me those questions on the street. They don't ask me what it was like to meet Donald Trump. It's unbelievable. And that's the pleasure. So it's almost like you were a shrink. Um, and then, but people happen to recognize you. So my private life and my public life are really woven together well now. I don't, you know what I mean? I was with Dawn and everybody was taking selfies. They don't really do that to me. They think I'm kind of, you know, uh, a person who's, an, you know, an expert on mental health. And that's fine with me. Are you an attention seeker? Because I can't quite work it out. You talked earlier about the community, about being on stage and, and, and having a community thereby. But you're also... 
No, my real community is Frazzle Cafe, you know, that I started seven years ago, where I, I run it every two weeks. I ran it every day during COVID and it's free and you come on and speak, you know, as a human being. So people can feel heard and feel like, and that's really when I'm happy because I don't give therapy there. I'm just a listener and they, you know, talk to, they have one or two minutes and there's breakout groups. And at the end of that, my heart is really beating. That's, that's community. I'm standing on stage is bullfighting. That's something else, but I do like connecting to the audience. I like that. You need a, you need a spoonful of narcissism. Let me tell you, because most people would die rather than go on stage. I've lost it completely, the need for attention. So you did have that need for attention? Yeah, but not so much anymore. Final question to you, Ruby. I mean, we really have rattled through. We are, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of, I think we're 20 minutes in or something. <laughs> Final question a minute. Final question to you is this. Again, I, I'm not interested in, in, in sort of being invasive of people's private lives. And at the same time, I hope to get a sense of you. And by the way, this this leads to a sort of subsidiary question, which is a cheat. And I'll ask it before my final question. How, As an interviewer, a very famous interviewer, how much do you believe in the process of interviewing? And of course, there are very many different styles. You can have people who really try to study people. You can have people who want to bring comedy out. You can have a mix of the two and so on and so forth. Lots of different ways of doing it. There's print, there's telly, there's radio and so forth podcast do you think there is a, a broadly speaking there can be an integrity to the process given that many of us or all of us you could argue don't really ever totally know ourselves how can we hope to know someone else in a, within a very short space of time talk to me briefly if you would about the nature of the interview and whether you think it is a worthwhile exercise and well everybody you know it's graham norton makes and i'm not allowed on his show for some reason in 30 years um i uh He's going for laughs and that's, and he's good and he's getting them. That's a lucrative job. I was always this, I'd studied psychology. I'm only interested in what the mind does, but you have to make them laugh in order for them to, 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 to I don't need, I say what, I don't need the detail, the dirt on your life, but I like to see how you see the world and that's training and that's a gift. And, you know, I'm not doing it to make it. I'm not even thinking of the audience in a way. I am a little bit, but I'm thinking I got to put this Rubik's Cube together. So I can't say that's a technique for everybody. But I was satisfying my um, a thesis on how fame works. Or if I meet an, a taxi driver, how does he see the world? But if I'm on TV, I'll make him funny every few beats. But I'm really drilling down, not the dirt, but to say to see how he sees it. How does he how does he create? his reality. I'm fascinated. So I can't say that's an interview technique. I just happen to have that, even if I'm on a bus or something. Very interesting. I, I can't let you say that you've not been allowed on the Graham Norton show for 30 years without trying to understand why you haven't been on the Graham Norton show. my agent. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure you are allowed on the Graham Norton show. No, I've never been asked. No, you've never been asked? Mm -mm. Maybe you will be as a consequence of our interview. I don't think I will be. You know what I mean? 30 but you'd years be You'd be such good value on the Graham Norton never, show. Never, never allowed. Do you enjoy his show? No, I don't really watch it, but I appreciate how brilliant he is. Final question, final, final, final question. Number 20, minus the cheats. What do we not know about you? Again, without invading your private life, what are your sort of interests? I mean, we just obviously described, dis discussed your interest in the brain and your passion for trying to understand that and us. But what might we not know about you? What are you good at? What are you interested in? What what do you how do you wind down? What do you love doing? Oh, I do mindfulness. 
And uh, my happy place is being silent. So I, I'm about, I did a 30 day retreat for the book, but also in my real life. So I'm doing a two week one. That's my fascination. It's, it's like Iron Man of the brain and silence is my happy place. Ruby Wax, that's an answer that I did not expect to hear, but what a bombshell on which to end our 20 questions. Thank you so much for answering my 20 questions and and being such a good sport and doing it with a smile on your face as I'm now smiling. I've been smiling most of the way through. Really good fun. Thank you very much, Ruby. Thank you. Thanks, Matthew.